Welcome to Like Flint Radio. I'm your host, GK. You can find us on the web at www.likeflintradio.com. Today I'm talking to Pastor Mike Spaulding, and uh, I'm going to be talking to Mike about hermeneutics, amongst other things. We'll see where we go with this, but I'll bring Mike right on right now. Uh, Pastor Mike, welcome to Like Flint Radio. Garth, thank you very much for inviting me to... Uh... Uh, the show. I'm I'm blessed and honored to to be a guest. Well, thanks for agreeing. Um, now we're going to be basically, uh, for the most part, talking about hermeneutics. Uh, before we get into that, Mike, and I know we're going to uh, do some deep diving, and we we need to let our uh, listeners know to buckle buckle up. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> before we get get into that, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what it is you do, please? Yes, I'm blessed to do that. I pastor a small church here in uh, Ohio. Uh, we're, and when I say small, uh, that is, uh, I understand that's a relative term. Uh, for us, that means under 100 uh, regular attendees. Uh, we have a lot of uh, bigger churches in town, but we're small. Um, and uh, I kind of like small churches uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, an opportunity to get to know everybody uh, on a much deeper level. And as a pastor, I've got to tell you that uh, small churches uh, are, are such a blessing uh, to a pastor and to his family uh, for, for a lot of different reasons. So pastor of small church here in Ohio, married, I've got uh, four grown daughters, five grandchildren already, which is hard to believe. I've come to understand uh, uh, the meaning of, of that phrase that life goes by very quickly <laughs> and uh so blessed in that way i also uh work a full-time job so i am bivocational uh and uh, uh my wife and i uh, have been blessed to be able to do that for all the years of our ministry uh, now my background is um rather varied uh, my undergraduate degree I, I actually have uh Two undergraduate degrees. One uh, is in uh, human resources, uh, organizational management. Uh, a second uh, undergraduate degree is in Christian education. Uh, I have a master's degree in theological studies, which is um, a little different from a, a master's degree in theology. The, uh, the graduate theological studies degree is a little bit broader and uh, it takes more of a uh, general approach to theology instead of a specific uh, approach or track that you might find in a, a typical master of theology degree program. Right. And then my post, yeah, then my postgraduate work is, um, in, uh, theology and apologetics. So my passion is apologetics. I, I like to, to teach, uh, courses in apologetics, talk to folks uh, about apologetics. And, and of course my church would, uh, 
the church that I serve as a pastor would reflect that. They've, they've been, uh, through many, many, many apologetic studies and are well equipped to, uh, give a reason for the hope that is in them. So that's a little bit about me, Garth. No, that's excellent. Thank you for that. Now I said we're going to talk about hermeneutics, but I guess what we need, what we need to start with is, uh, is a def- definition and maybe yeah. some etymology too. I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in things like that. Um, yes. so what does, what does the term hermeneutics mean and, uh, where does it come from? Yes. Well, the word hermeneutics is from the Greek hermeneo and it means to interpret. Now, if you follow it back, the uh, etymology of it, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It seems to be connected with the uh, Greek mythological God Hermes, right. who was a, a messenger. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's a message. It's an interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if I was to give a, a proper or maybe we would say a dictionary definition, um, it would be something along the lines of um, uh, hermeneutics is the study uh, or statement of the principles on which a text, and of course for our purposes here, the biblical text, mm-hmm. uh, is to be understood uh, and or the interpretation of a text uh, in such a way that its message becomes clear to the reader uh, or the hearer. Now, as soon as I give that definition, uh, I, I also like to tell folks that now that presupposes a couple of things. Uh, first, it, it presupposes that uh, uh, the, the, the folks that you're talking to your audience, your listeners, that they're interested in learning how to study the Bible for themselves. That's not a given anymore uh, in our, certainly not here in America. Uh, I know we've had conversations, Garth, about the uh, climate there in uh, Australia, and it That's sounds right. somewhat somewhat similar mm-hmm. uh, to what's going on here. Um, but secondly, it, it presupposes that folks are willing to put in the hard work necessary to understand uh, the Bible's beauty and its depth. I, I don't want to mislead anybody into thinking that uh, studying the Bible uh, is is uh, very easy and simple and you can do it on the fly. It actually uh, takes a lot of work. Now, I'm not suggesting that the message of salvation is difficult to understand. I'm not saying that at all because right. it is quite simple. Right. But if you're going to mine the fruit and receive uh, the power of the word and the sustenance uh, for your daily life, that's going to require some effort. Uh, and, th- and then finally that folks, when you, when you talk to them about hermeneutics, um, it presupposes that folks believe the Bible's true. And, um, uh, I'll flesh out some of these things as we progress through our, our conversation today. Are there different schools of thought in bibl- biblical her- hermeneutics? Yes, there are. There, there are several actually. Um, now I, um, I subscribe to what is called the uh, literal, okay. historical, grammatical uh, approach to, uh, to Bible study. Right. Um, now, again, some preface to that. Mm. Uh, people may wonder, and, and I've heard this, you probably have too, Garth. Uh, Folks have, have responded to, to my encouragement to study the scriptures by saying, well, is that really necessary? As long as we are regular attendees of a, of a church and we listen to sermons every week, isn't that, uh, isn't that enough? And, 
So my response to that is that absolutely no, it's not enough. And the Bible tells us that we are to be students of the word um, for many various reasons. But the primary one is that it's essential for spiritual growth. Uh, studying the Bible is essential for maturity, for effectiveness as uh, as God's children. And I, I call your attention uh, to First uh, Peter two two for for example, where we read Peter's admonition. He says, "As newborn babes, long." for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So in that one passage, Garth, the Apostle Peter tells us three things that are essential to the Christian life. He, he identifies our attitude, that we should that we should have the attitude of newborn babes. And uh, as, as, as a parent, uh, folks will understand this. Uh, newborn babes, what, what they want, when they want it, and they're not going to take no for an answer. And so... Uh, Peter is saying here that that should be our attitude concerning the word, that we just immerse ourselves in that. We want the word constantly. But and, also um, speaks to and Mike, um, in the version you read out there, you said long. So that sort of mm. talks about have a strong desire, doesn't it? That That's exactly right. And that that is, in fact, the second point. Um, longing for the pure milk of the word speaks about our appetite that we have to have it. It's a, it's a desire that's only, uh, satiated by our study of the word. And then, and then, but that verse also speaks about our aim. Notice that it says that we are to long for the pure milk of the word, that by it, by the word, you may grow in respect to salvation. So our aim is that we may grow in our, our salvation. And in that context, uh, that is the, the process of sanctification. I mean, we grow in holiness and in righteousness. But there are other passages too. Uh, I point out to folks, Second Peter 3, uh, verses uh, uh, 6 and 7, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, adequate equipped for every good work. And, and by the way, Garth, when it says that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable hmm. and so on and so on. That includes numbers and Leviticus too. <laughs> <laughs> I like pointing that out because seems like folks want to jump right past those books, but um, caring about a, a, a correct hermeneutic approach requires hmm. that, that we adopt. And, and this is, this is my perspective. So I'm kind of laying out my philosophy hmm. of, of, hmm. Uh, of a, uh, of an approach to Bible study that I hope others will will grasp and understand and see the value in. Mike, are you uh, um are you saying um that from Genesis to Revelation it's all tied together and it's all appropriate for us to study as a as a whole? That's exactly what I'm saying. Mm, yes. Yeah. Every every book in the Bible. And and the the reason that I make that point and the reason that I said that that includes numbers in Leviticus is because it's yeah. quite common for uh, pastors and, and churches to pretty much, at least in practice, ignore the Old Testament. Um, they, they focus almost exclusively uh, on the New Testament. And whether they'll say it uh, verbally or not, their actions demonstrate that they see little to no value in studying the Old Testament. And, and that just is not so, Garth. So <clears throat> laying all this out then, uh, I think focuses on or points us in the direction almost forces us to go 
uh, toward an inductive approach uh, to studying the scriptures. And that in turn points to expository teaching. Um, now, when I talk about an inductive study, uh, I'm talking about uh, three major points, and I'll, I'll get to those in just a moment because I want to give some caveats before we, uh, before we head in that direction. But uh, an inductive study uh, of the Bible includes observation, interpretation, and application. Those are three things that are absolutely essential uh, to our approach, and uh, they're really easy to, to, to understand and, and apply once you're exposed to them. But, but a couple of caveats as, uh, as we get into that. Uh, there are some things that every individual uh, has to admit and, and apply these disciplines to their own personal study uh, of the Bible. And, and, and the first one that, uh, uh, that I would point out is that context is king. Now, when I'm preaching on Sundays or Wednesdays or any other time, and I start uh, to make a point and bring up this issues uh, before my fellowship, all I need to say is context is, and the rest of the folks <laughs> in the congregation will finish the statement for me and say king. So they've been, they've been taught and trained that uh, we have to allow, as, as a primary understanding of our approach to the scriptures, we have to allow the Bible to speak for itself. Context is king. That is a very important point because so many times, and it grieves my heart, so many times pastors and teachers will will uh, perform what I call proof texting, and they'll they'll take a, a verse of scripture and uh, and they'll read it in support of a point they're trying to make, but they're reading it uh, and not giving the context, and it turns out that the meaning of that verse in its context has nothing to do with the point that they're trying to make. So, so we have to let the text speak for itself, but then we also uh, we must not, and this is one of the, the huge barriers that we, that every individual has to overcome, but we must not confuse what we think we already know with what the text actually says. Now, that means that we have to acknowledge uh, right up front that each of us is shaped by our own theological upbringing or our own theological uh, belief systems. Uh, in other words, we all have some presuppositions or biases that we bring into a study of the scripture. So I'm not saying that we have to do away with those. That would be impossible. But we have to admit that they exist. And then we have to approach our study in light of those biases and presuppositions. So uh, we have to... Uh, uh, refrain from trying to dismiss difficulties in, in, in the text. And what I mean by that is if, uh, if we come across a passage of scripture that doesn't fit into our theological system, don't gloss it over. Don't ignore it. Don't try to make it say something that it doesn't. You have to account for those uh, difficulties in the text. I also like to tell people, listen, start your study of the scripture by reading the scripture, reading the scripture. And people say, well, duh, Mike, of course. Well, here, here, here's, here's how some people start their study. They start their study with commentaries. Right. That, that's a no, no. Right. Now I'm not saying there isn't a place for that because there is, mm. but that comes much further down the line in the process of studying uh, a passage of scripture 
than what many people think. So uh, start by reading the scripture and read it again and read it again. Uh, I read it four or five times. And, and, the, and the reason for that, Garth, is I want to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to me about the meaning of a text. And, and I think there is biblical support for that as well. And then finally, just teach the Bible uh, for your listeners. Just teach the Bible and stop trying to turn every text into another supporting passage for your hobby horse doctrines or your individual theological systems. I can't tell you how many times uh, I've, I've seen folks do that. Uh, they'll, they'll take a passage of scripture that has nothing to do with their particular pet doctrine, but they'll make it seem to fit. Pastors and even lay people desperately need to trust Jesus uh, to build the church through the teaching of his word and stop trying to do that themselves. So those are some caveats that I always give uh, uh, before I start teaching uh, uh, classes on hermeneutics. Uh, we've already given a definition of what that means. Now, one of the best texts, and let, let me say this, I, I was going to share it at the end, Garth, but let me say that one of the best texts that that I've found, and, and I stumbled across this many years ago. Uh, in fact, I was attending some training uh, in uh, uh, Tennessee for Precept Ministries. Are, are, are you familiar with Precept Ministries, Garth? Uh, yes, yep. Okay. Uh, I, I was attending some training. Um, it was uh, training for... Uh, instructors and those wanting to become instructors. And uh, I, I picked up a book by a man named Robertson McQuilkin. And uh, his last name is M-C-Q-U-I-L-K-I-N, Robertson McQuilkin. And uh, the name of the book is Understanding and Applying the Bible. Understanding and Applying the Bible. And basically what it is, it's a, uh, a first-year text on... Uh, on hermeneutics and uh, in the introduction to his book, uh, McQuilkin gives some excellent principles. And I, I was, I was thinking I would like to share those with your listeners if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead, please. Yep. Okay. In, in, uh, in McQuilkin's book and it's, it's right up towards the front. So you can't miss them. He gives um, three principles uh, and then several supporting guidelines for each one of those principles for uh, understanding and applying the Bible, in other words, for your hermeneutic uh, study. Principle number one, since the Bible was written by human beings, it must be treated as any other human communication in determining the meaning intended by the writer. Now, let me give you some guidelines for that principle, ways to expand upon that and help our understanding. So since it was written by human beings, and it's like any other human communication, uh, we must understand that so that we can understand the intention of the writer. So uh, the first guideline for that is based the study on the historical, physical, and cultural setting. Now, that obviously means that uh, you're going to do a little bit of work in understanding what the historical, physical, and cultural setting of that day was. And uh, as, as we get into this, Garth, I've got some examples that I'll share later that shows uh, this principle in action. Yeah, good, because um, I was chomping at the bit there. I really want to ask <laughs> you for some. Um, I knew you would have some, but uh, yep. okay, so I'll let, I'll let you carry on. But yes, I'm looking forward to some uh, examples just so that we can all understand, um, put wheels on what we're discussing here. That That's right. Mm. 
So uh, a second guideline for this principle, number one, then, is that we need to research each unclear and important word. Each important. So and I'll give some resources later that will help folks to do that. Then analyze the structure of the basic unit of thought, the sentence. Then examine the immediate context, the passage as a whole, and then the chapter, and then the book. Uh, the fifth guideline for this first principle, identify figurative language and determine its literal meaning. The Bible is full of figurative and symbolic language, and we'll touch on that as well. Uh, and then a sixth guideline for principle number one, interpret parables strictly according to the special principles required by this type of literature. Parables are are uh, a whole different subset uh, genre, if you will, uh, within the Bible, and we'll we'll touch on that too. And then finally, a supporting guideline for principle number one is use the parallelism of Hebrew pro. I'm sorry, Hebrew poetry to gain insight into the meaning. Hebrew poetry is not like uh, Western poetry, uh, like English poetry, and uh, and and so understanding that is going to to help uh, flush out some of the meaning. So that's principle number one, and then principle number two for uh, understanding and applying the Bible, Garth, is this: since Scripture is God breathed and true in all its parts, the unity of its teachings must be sought and its supernatural elements recognized and understood. So principle number one was that it is a human communication. Principle number two is that it, but it is also God breathed. It is uh, true in all of its parts. And so some guidelines for applying principle number two, and there are four of them, and they are these. Compare scripture with scripture for light on each passage and discover the unity of its teaching. The Bible is the best explanation of itself, isn't it? Correct. Agreed. And that's why I said to you earlier, your... Um point of view is that the Bible is a whole, considered as a whole yes. from Genesis to Revelation, um, which right. I also believe as well. So, Yes. Hmm. So uh, guideline two for principle two, after we compare scripture with scripture, then we need to establish the coherence of revealed truth. Uh, guideline three for principle two, since we hold that the Bible is God-breathed and true in all its parts, when a statement appears to be an error or some may say in contradiction, we are committed to seek an explanation. And that means we don't just dismiss it, but that we understand there must be uh, an explanation for what I'm reading, a meaning other than the one that I'm deriving from this, because it seems to be in contradiction with another passage. So a digger, a, a deeper dig is required, is what McQuilkin is saying. And then finally, at the fourth guideline for principle two, to understand predictive prophecy in Scripture, faithfully observe biblical guidelines. Now, again, we're going to touch on all these things in our conversation today, uh, Garth, but, but let me just say that uh, biblical prophecy is uh, just as, if not more, relevant to the life of a believer today than it ever has been. Unfortunately, I'm seeing more and more uh, prominent preachers uh, dismiss prophecy with uh, very casual and, and I believe careless statements to the effect that, well, we don't need to worry about prophecy and we don't need to be focusing on uh, eschatological things and all trying to understand. We just need to focus on the here and now and figure out how we can be a better and then fill in the blank. And that that grieves me. 
tremendously. And then we, you get the other end of the <laughs> spectrum where uh, that that's all certain um, uh, preachers talk about is prophecy. Yes. And they major on that to the detriment of other parts of the that's, Bible. That's right. There's, there is a balance, isn't there? Mm, mm. And so finally then the third, uh, the third principle for understanding and applying the Bible, since scripture is God breathed, it is absolute in its authority for doctrine and life. Now that rubs people the wrong way immediately when you use that word absolute. Absolute. People don't like that idea that there is such thing as absolute truth because they're smart enough to understand the implications of that. Uh, So what are the guidelines? There are two guidelines then for this principle that since scripture is God breathed, it is absolute in its authority for doctrine and life. And those guidelines are, are these. Uh, First, every teaching of scripture is to be received universally unless the Bible itself limits the audience, either in the context of the passage itself or in other biblical teaching. And then secondly, the second guideline is that God desires the response of faith and obedience to both the direct teaching and the principles of Scripture. So that's why I say when when you're approaching a a hermeneutical uh, study of the Scriptures, uh, that you have to understand what the Bible claims for itself. The Bible says that it is true in everything that it says. And so when we approach a study of the scriptures, we need to approach it um, that way. So this establishes then, Garth, from the, the very beginning, uh, that the Bible's claims for itself are to be taken seriously by every person that's approaching a study of it. Uh, it claims that the revelation... Uh, of God, and therefore any approach to the study must account for that. So let's discuss some of the most common principles of a proper process or hermeneutical approach to Bible study. And there are three major categories that we want to pay attention to, and I, I mentioned them a bit earlier. Uh, those three are this, observation, interpretation, and application. Uh, observation simply means what do I see when I'm, when I'm reading it. And this is this is a principle that uh, I practice, uh, we have men's discipleship group, and I think that's what brought up this, this conversation initially, Garth, was I was sharing about, uh, our men's discipleship group. Uh, we get, we get together every other week, uh, just for, uh, Bible study, uh, fellowship edification. And, uh, what, what we do is we, uh, and currently we're in the book of Luke, but we'll read it together. Each person takes turns. Uh, reading a a thought, uh, several verses that comprise a thought or a theme, and then he'll comment uh, about that, the things that stick out to him, and then others will contribute with their thoughts and what they see uh, in that passage. And that's exactly this principle and observation. Um, just looking at the text and what immediately comes to mind. And, and I would encourage people as they're working through this process of observation that they have a notepad with them and they start jotting down some notes uh, because I, what I've learned by experience is that the Holy Spirit will bring uh, passages back to their memory that are related to this, that say something uh, similar to that. And, uh, and then you're off and running on a Bible study. And in, in fact, that's a good way to comprise a teaching is just to uh, start observing a passage, uh, start taking notes, initial thoughts and impressions, writing down other Bible verses. And before you know it, 
you've got a sermon or a teaching in hand. So uh, observation, what do I see? Uh, interpretation, what does it mean? And, of course, this is within the context of the original readers first. Context is king. And then finally, application. How does it apply to me and my life? So observation is the first, and it's really the foundational principle because it feeds into the next two principles, interpretation and, and application, without uh, without taking the time to conduct a, a good and thorough observation process, I can almost guarantee you that a faulty interpretation is going to be the result. So what are some of the things that, that uh, we want to pay attention to during the observation phase of our Bible study? Well, I've, I've, I've come up with uh, four, and this list is not original to me, certainly. Uh, you can read any good book on hermeneutics and you will find these. Uh, but as we observe a passage, there are four things we want to look at, and, and, and they are these. Terms or words, the number of times they're used, the repetition, uh, the level of the significance of the words. So terms or words, that's one. Secondly is the structure uh, of the text under consideration. Third, then, is the genre of the book that you're studying. Um, and then finally, the background or the context for the writing and the author. If folks will take the time to understand the, the viewpoint or, or the intended audience of a book, that goes a long way towards helping to explain some of the things that they're going to read. So, so what do we mean by observing terms or words and 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 how can that help us in our approach to interpretation? Well, let's take a, a well-known passage of Scripture as an illustration, Garth, uh, and, and show folks how uh, words are important and how we should notice those within the, the passage that we're reading. And this is Psalm 23. Uh, very, very familiar with folks, Psalm 23. And I'm going to purposely uh, emphasize... Uh, particular words, uh, so that folks will, will understand quickly what I'm, what I'm driving at here. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 23. So the focus, <laughs> the focus in these verses in, uh, in Psalm 23 is clearly on whom? God. God. God who is our shepherd, our provider, our defender. So the question for me, uh, to our listeners, and I, and I ask them to ask themselves this question, if God is the focus in this passage, then why do we see so many teachings on this that amount to little more than just some type of psychobabble ex- exposition of self-help nonsense? And that I see that repeatedly. If you approach this passage of scripture for what it really is, Garth, this is all about the glory of God and his provision for us and the reasons, some of the many reasons that he is worthy of our worship and praise. Now, another important aspect that 
and I'm not really going to touch on this today other than to mention it, um, is word studies. An absolute must for Bible students uh, is a good original language resource uh, that, that can define, describe both the Hebrew and Greek words that are utilized in the Old and, and New Testaments. And perhaps we'll save that for a uh, topic for another time. But, um, but, but, but just in passing, I, I would mention that there are several, and I, I have these in my library, Wiest's Theological Dictionary of Old Testament Words is a great resource. Um, and, and you do not have to be uh, uh, knowledgeable in the Hebrew um, in order to use this text. It's set up and keyed um, to Strong's, so that's very helpful. Um, Vine's Expository Dictionary is a good resource, and uh, I, I would recommend that for any any Christian's library. It gives a very good and quick uh, definition of words. Strong's, of course, is is the old stable, right? Right. Everyone sh- yeah. Everyone's probably got one. Yes, everybody's probably got one. <laughs> there, there, are, there are several other good Hebrew and Greek interlinear study tools, and I, I, I encourage folks just to browse. Uh, you know, there are several websites available where you can buy uh, Christian books. So, encourage them to look those up uh, on their own. So, so moving then from uh, observation after uh, observing the instances of words, patterns um, of their appearance. Uh, Psalm twenty-three was an example. And their relationship to each other in a text, then you need to move on to the second step in the observation process, which is observing the structure. The structure. Now, that's a step that many believers are familiar with. Um, questions to ask as you're reading the text. And, and we all know these, the who, what, when, where, how, why questions of a text. Who, who is the particular person, uh, either speaking or who is the author? What's the argument? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, what's what's the point being made in the passage? Um, the when? When did the event take place? When when was it written? Uh, where did the event take place? Um, how did something happen? How was that event taking place, and why? Perhaps maybe uh, even more applicable. Why why do we see this? So. Observing the structure also means that we should be looking for certain things, Garth, and things that are emphasized or repeated, things that are related to one another, things that are alike or that are unlike, um, things that are uh, true to life, even in our own context. And then and then the order of things in the text, those are all uh, very important to, to be paying attention to. Now, this might surprise some of our listeners, Garth, but the text actually points these things out to us in many instances. And now, let me let me give you um, some examples things of things that are emphasized. Uh, this is John uh, chapter twenty, verses thirty and thirty-one. And this is what we read: Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And then a second uh, passage, uh, Hebrews 8, verse 1, and this is a very clear example. But sometimes we read over things and we don't pick up or catch what the author has actually said. But uh, listen to this, Hebrews 8, 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. Now, <laughs> I love that because he's just saying, listen. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. Here's what all this means. Here is the point. This is the point. We have such a high priest 
who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So he's talking about Jesus Christ here. He's saying, I've laid out this argument, and here's the main point in all of this. So things that are emphasized, there's a couple of examples, Um, things that are repeated, uh, Jude, verses 14 and 15, and I'll emphasize these words Mm. for our listeners. Uh, It was also... About these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all of the ungodly, <clears throat> excuse me, of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What's the, what's the emphasis and what's repeated there? ungodliness and so jude is is talking about those things. really he's really ramming the message home there isn't he yes that's exactly right it's, it's almost not like saying now the main point in all of this is this uh, another example of things being repeated genesis 1 1 and john 1 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth john 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We should be talking about that in uh, conjunction with each other. And then th- let me give you one more example and then we'll move on uh, of words repeated, ideas repeated. Um, Genesis 22, uh, uh, verse 4. On the third day, Abram raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised when? On the third day. It's easy to uh, do a Bible study on that and understand the significance. So uh, the point here, Garth, is that when we study the Bible, we're looking for all sorts of things that help us understand the meaning, things that are emphasized, repeated, related, alike, unlike, etc., and so forth. And I'm not going to go into in the detail on the, uh, those remaining items, I'll leave that to your listeners to apply uh, the same methodology that I've described here. And then uh, uh, the third step of the four steps in our process of observation has to do with identifying the genre. Uh, when we speak of genre of the text, we're trying to um, identify the, the literary type of material that we're reading. And, and there are five primary categories of genres. And, and I know there are a lot of different subsets, but these are the five major, uh, genres, uh, of biblical literature. We have narrative. We have gospel. We have poetry. We have prophecy. And we have didactic. Genre, narrative, gospel, poetry, prophecy, didactic. Now, let me give a brief explanation uh, of those, Garth, for our listeners. Uh, narrative is is a story that's told uh, for the purpose of conveying a message through the recording of events, um, situations, people, settings, plot, all of those things, uh, other factors, and all of those together constitute a story. Now. There are, there are different kinds of narratives. Uh, we have the tragedy narrative. We think of King Saul, for example, and uh, his life as an illustration of what not to do in many instances. Uh, we have uh, epic narratives. The, the, the Exodus story, for example, comes to mind. Um, we have the heroic uh, narrative, and, and I think of the, the life of Paul uh, in this regard. 
Um, and then within the narratives and within the different genres, there are also different types of literary devices. And I'm not going to go into those, but I'll just mention them briefly. There are typology uh, and then related to Hebrew poetry, uh, Chiism, which is a style of poetry that begins with different um, letters of the Hebrew alphabet and descending and ascending order. And I'll leave that to, <laughs> I'll leave that to our listeners to go figure out what that uh, what that means and. And, and uh, where they find that at. Um, but then, uh, so then there's poetry uh, as a genre. Now that would, that would be you know, the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon. Those are the, are the main poetic books, but other books also contain poetry in them. Now, the primary thing to observe about poetry is the use of parallelism. Parallelism. I know you're familiar with this, Garth. Um, there, there are essentially <clears throat> three forms of parallelism. Uh, there's synonymous parallelism, uh, antithetic parallelism, and synthetic parallelism. Now, synonymous parallelism presents the same thought, uh, with a slight difference. And here's an example, Proverbs 19.5. Uh, synonymous parallelism. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. So same thought in both uh, clauses there, but with a slightly different presentation. Um, an antithetic uh, parallelism example uh, could be Proverbs 13.1, where it says, A wise son accepts his father's discipline. But a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. So that's two different thoughts set in contrast to one another. Um, and then synthetic parallelism, uh, Psalm 92.9 would be an example of that. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity uh, will be scattered. So it sets the expectation in the first thought or clause that's completed in the second part or clause. Now, how do we understand poetic parallelism and, and why does that help us when we're reading scriptures? Well, here's an example in uh, Matthew chapter 6. Most people refer to that as the Lord's Prayer. I refer to it as the Disciples Prayer. I make a distinction between that and John 17. Uh, so the, in the disciples' prayer, Jesus was teaching this, the disciples to pray. And in verse 13, he said, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from, from evil. Now, the question is, why would Jesus ask that God not lead us into, into temptation when the Bible tells us that let no one say when he is tempted that he's being tempted by God, for yeah. God cannot be tempted. Yeah. So how can that be? Mm. Isn't that... Uh, really a, a contradiction and even in Matthew chapter 4 we read then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to what be tempted by the devil well that's an example of synonymous parallelism temptation means that we are exposed to the power of the enemy which is what Jesus taught his followers to pray to be delivered from right the end of that verse in Matthew should actually say deliver us from the evil one the evil one. So when, when, when we understand that genre and literary forms uh, uh, really can help us dig out, flesh out the meaning, it, it, it really does clear up any perceived difficulties 
uh, with other texts. Um, and then we have prophecy, uh, the genre of prophecy. And there are many different types of prophecy uh, in, in the scripture, uh, judgments, uh, woe oracles, um, salvation oracles, prophecies of promise of deliverance, for example, um, symbolic prophecies, uh, apocalyptic prophecies, uh, employing visions and visitations, symbolism, and, and so on. And, of course, the, the, the book we think uh, most often about in that regard is the book of Revelation. And then finally, uh, the didactic genre. And this primarily involves the epistles uh, of the New Testament. It's designed to, uh, to teach the reader uh, these uh, prescriptive uh, laws and commandments. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 12.30, all do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Uh and then let's contrast that with Acts 2, verses 2 through 4, where we read, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. That's Acts 2, verses 2 through 4. So the didactic genre uh, teaches us the, the, the characteristics or the difference between a prescriptive and a descriptive. In other words, what is prescribed for us as believers to obey and follow versus what is just a descriptive uh, passage of what happened. When we get those two things confused, that results in um, some very uh, uh, strict uh, legalism within denominations and adherence to certain, uh, let's say dress codes and appearance codes because they, they misapply, misunderstand descriptive passages of scripture and make them prescriptive. So that's the didactic genre. Now, the fourth and, and uh, final step in the principle of observation. I know that at this point your readers are probably thinking, you've got to be kidding me. All of this is, <laughs> all of this is involved in saying, why can't I just open the Bible and yeah. read? Well, <laughs> well, you, you certainly can. And, and I encourage that. We should read the scriptures for pleasure. Um, but if you're, you're someone who wants to uh, dig a little deeper and, uh, and really put some things together, and uh, uh, I know as a young believer, I had a lot of questions, Garth. Mm-hmm. I had many things that I was yeah. reading in Scripture, and I thought, well, now, how does this fit with this, and why is this like this? And, well, if you're, if you're really interested in doing that, well, this is a roadmap for you. So don't be disheartened. These things aren't aren't difficult. I don't mean to make them sound as if they're difficult. And I know it sounds like... Uh, uh, a bit like trying to get a drink of water from a fire hydrant, but uh, this is all just some of the things that you can apply some of these principles uh, to your own personal Bible study. Um, so then the fourth step in the, in the principle or the process of observation uh, is identifying the background and the context. Now this is for me personally, this is where I normally start. This is my starting point, this this fourth step, the background and the context, because I want to understand, first of all, what did it mean in its its historical setting? What was the historical context? What was going on at the time that this was being written? Uh, what was the political environment 
what was the religious environment? What was the geographical environment? Where where is it taking place, and why was it taking place there? Um, what's the cultural big picture? Now, now, let me give you an example of the value of understanding um, uh, the background and the context uh, of a passage. And this is from Revelation chapter three, uh, verses um, fourteen through eighteen, Garth. And this is what it says. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So here in this this passage in Revelation 3, Garth, uh, we read, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, understanding the, the, the culture, the background, the historical context is very helpful in, in passages such as this. Laodicea was between two other cities, Hierapolis and Colossae, or Colossae, some people pronounce it. Hierapolis was known for its hot mineral springs, uh, which they believed had uh, had healing properties. Where uh, whereas Colossae has uh, had a rare cold stream, whose waters were very refreshing. So Laodicea built aqueducts to to pipe both the hot water from Hierapolis and the cold water from Colossae into their city. However, the hot water cooled down by the time it got there, and the cold water warmed up, and they both became lukewarm. And, and then beyond that, the water contained sludge. It was opened air, open to any critters and birds and anything else that wanted to, to, to have a drink. And, and, and so it carried diseases and it, it made it, uh, 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 sickening to the people that drank it. So but what Jesus is telling us there in, in Revelation three is that the Laodiceans were just like their water. They, they, they neither heal nor refresh, and, and they're literally of no value. They, they made him sick, just like the water that they drank made them sick. So uh, continuing off that example, we, we read in Revelation 3, it says, uh, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, white garments and then salve and so on and so forth. Well, Laodicea at the time, was known for its wealth. It had a very strong and established banking industry. Uh, and I'll refrain from any comments about that. Uh, but it was famous for its, its black wool, uh, for the medical school that it had there that, uh, had, had created a type of eye salve that they said healed common eye problems. So Christ is telling them that they're actually very poor regardless of their material wealth. In place of their banks, they need real gold. Um, in place of their black wool that they prided themselves on, they need white garments of righteousness. 
Uh, and in place of their physical eye salve, they need spiritual eye salve so they could really see. So uh, that's that's just one illustration of of, uh, of uh, the need and really the benefit of understanding the historical, uh, geographical context of a passage. So, so we've covered uh, the four keys of observation. Those were terms, words. Uh, you're going to look at words that are alike, unlike, contrasting, repeated, emphasized, so on and so forth. Uh, the structure of a passage, you're going to look at the genre, you're going to look at the background now. Observation, obviously, because everything I described, some folks are thinking, wow, this takes a little bit of work. And, and they're right, it does. But the fruit that it bears is very substantial because that funnels into uh, the next step of a, a Bible study process, a hermeneutical process, and that's interpretation uh, and that is the second step of the three steps I gave initially, observation, interpretation, uh, application. Now, again, the, the method of interpretation uh, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Garth, is uh, that, that I adhere to because I believe it's the correct uh, uh, approach, is the literal, historical, grammatical method. All of those words obviously mean something. Now, there are other uh, uh, methods of approach, the allegorical method, for example, that, that is the, the interpretive process that the Roman Catholic Church uses. Um, some believe that originated with uh, Augustine, by the way, or Augustine, some people uh, pronounce his name. Um, but the allegorical method uh, is, is very akin to uh, what I call mysticism in the sense that uh, it gives you the freedom to apply any kind of meaning that you want. That's very dangerous. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, the allegorical method of Bible interpretation suggests that there are at least four different levels of meaning. Uh, the literal, the allegorical, the moral, the eschatological, uh, for instance, uh, they, you could take the word Jerusalem. Well, it literally refers to the city itself. Allegorically, it refers to the church of Christ. Uh, morally, it indicates the human soul. Uh, eschatologically, it points to the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, I, I think you can see that that uh, leaves uh, a wide open door for all kinds of abuses. And, and uh, Garth, I know you've been around a while. Uh, so uh, I'm sure that, like me, you have heard all kinds of interpretive abuses of words and misapplications. Um, well, using that one, for example, Mike, um, Jerusalem, uh, what you're pointing out there is that uh, I could come across the word Jerusalem and then I could, uh, in any pa- uh, passage of Scripture, and then I could uh, stretch that out, twist it, bend it, and then go down a whole different path than what was in the context of that that passage, and I could wander off into error and mm-hmm. take other people with me. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah. Before we move on, Mike, what I wanted to ask you is, um, and, and you have touched on it bef- a couple of times already, but um, some of the stuff that you're talking about does sound very heavy duty to the layperson, like it sounds very scholarly, or maybe that's just for pastors. Mm. Um, how do we help people understand including myself, that that really this is for all of us because I sort of hinted at it just there because the benefits I can see for um, making this effort and just a couple straight off the top of my head would be, well, one, I'm not going to be led into error if I apply some of these points that you're putting across here. If I apply them to my Bible study, I'm less likely to be, likely to be led into error. 
Um, but the other benefit it is too is that we're not just here for ourselves, so we can help others avoid that, right? Um, yes. Are there there other think reasons for applying this? Just you know, it's for all of us, Mike. I personally believe this is for all of us. Um, yes. The lay person, um, you know, everybody. But uh, are there other benefits besides the couple of simple ones that I've just pointed out? Yes. Well, to those who say that, well, uh, I can never be led into error, uh, pride goes before the fall, right? right. Don't think that that you're so smart or, or you, you've got it all together that you can never swallow uh, hook, line, and sinker false teaching. It happens all the time. Do, do you think folks that are sitting in cults, and, and I'm talking tens, uh, perhaps hundreds of thousands uh, just here in America, uh, go to attend weekly meetings of cults, uh, do you think that they would say that they've swallowed air? No, they'd say, no, I, I have the truth. But clearly, what they hold up as the truth is in direct contradiction to the scriptures. How is it that that they've allowed themselves to get into that position? Because they've listened to other teachers twist the scriptures to make it say something that it never does, and they don't follow up with their own study. So there's there's the first starting point. Um, uh, study, and, and I shared a verse already, study to show thyself approved, a worker that need not be ashamed. And what, what does that mean? Well, not be ashamed of what, uh, uh, what you've learned, uh, what you've been taught, and what you apply, uh, that, that my life will be consistent with what a Christ follower's life should look like according to the scriptures. So, and then there's this whole area of uh, exegesis versus eisegesis. And you, Garth, I know you understand what that means. Mm. Uh, um, exegesis is is discovering within the text itself uh, the meaning. And again, first of all, the meaning to the original hearers, uh, how we apply it to our own lives and situation. That's the application process that uh, hopefully we'll get to today. I'm not sure that we will, but... Um, uh, so, so that's exege- eisegesis is is pouring into a text your perceived understanding and meaning, and that's what all false teachers do. That's how scripture is twisted. So, uh, in, in answer to your question, I, I would start right there. And let me give you a couple of quotes from from some of the giants of the faith. And, and uh, uh, this doesn't mean that uh, by by quoting them that I. Um, agree with with right. everything in their theology. That's right. you know t- t- today it's that's. And let me just say this before before I get these quotes, Garth. I, I'm dismayed uh, by the number of people that uh, are confused um, when when you quote someone because it's a great quote. It has truth. It has mm-hmm. application. Mm-hmm. It is a very encouraging. People. Uh, they want to whack you over the head because of uh, some other discretion in this person's life. You shouldn't be quoting them because that means you subscribe to everything they say. And it's like, no, no, uh, I'm, I'm saying that this uh, quote, they were spot on on this. So, well, well I was going to say, Mike, um, when I was a guest on your program, I'm scratching my head now trying to think, did I quote Augustine? <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, no, did I? <laughs> I may hey, have, I- did I? <laughs> Garth, I, I quote Augustine all the time. Okay, uh, I quote Plato. I quote Aristotle. Right. When when what they say was right, right, uh, that doesn't mean I subscribe to their whole system. But uh, so anyway, that, that's a preface for these. Yeah. these quote, uh, uh, Martin Luther, for example. Mm-hmm. 
He said, uh, I study my Bible as I gather apples. First, I shake the whole tree that the ripest might fall. Then I shake each limb. And when I have shaken each limb, I shake each branch and every twig. And then I look under every leaf. Well, he said that in the context of Bible study. And and uh, so that uh, that's a good example. Uh, John Calvin said, I acknowledge that Scripture is a most rich and inexhaustible fountain of all wisdom, but I deny that its fertility consists in the various meanings which any man at his pleasure may assign. End quote. Now, the point in these uh, uh quotes the the meaning what they're saying garth is that there is a proper way to approach the scriptures uh and to study the scriptures and we do that as as martin luther pointed out layer by layer we peel them back much like we peel back an onion right so i give those quotations because uh and and i'm sure you've heard this too Uh, many people say well you don't really take the bible literally do you yeah yeah uh, or they say something like, isn't that just your interpretation? Right. Now, I love those kinds of statements, um, and I'm really not put off by them at all. In fact, I, I see them as an invitation to have a conversation with, with this person. Uh, and what I have found in my own experience, and I encourage, uh, encourage your listeners to, to consider this in, in this light. Uh, is that this is really an opportunity to engage them uh, with the gospel. When people say to me, you don't really take the Bible literally, do you? And then they throw out some kind of example like, you know, the Bible says that Jesus is a door. Is he a door? Or they say something like, well, does God have wings? You know, that kind of thing. Um, what I see immediately is is uh, someone who has uh, contrived this defense, and perhaps it's worked for them in the past, because they've not encountered a Christian who can point out to them uh, that the Bible uses symbolism, uh, the Bible uh, uses metaphorical language, uh, and we talk like that too in, in our normal everyday language. All we talk time. like that all, all the it. all of us do, especially it. Uh, us Aussies and and dare I say you Americans and yes our <laughs> South African friends and especially <laughs> the top of the heap our Brit friends they do it you know to the best. <laughs> Yes, that's that's exactly right. They're the best so, at it. So don't be put off. I guess is the point. Don't don't because you're equipped. You you have the the spirit of God living in you. Uh, and and uh, what I always do in those situations is I I pray a real quick prayer as they're saying it because I see that as an opportunity. Well, to use this example, I see it as a door. <laughs> it's a it's a door that's opening right, right. before me to right. share. To share the gospel. And so I, I pray quick, Lord, whatever it is that this person needs to hear and you want them to hear, put it in my mouth. Don't, I don't want to, uh, you know, you do this. And so, um, and then folks, when, when, when they say, well, isn't that just your interpretation? I'd like to play uh, a little game and I've done this once or twice just to make the point and it works. It works every time. Uh, turn that around on them, first of all. If people say, well, isn't that just your interpretation? Uh, my response is, is that your interpretation? And then they look at you normally with a puzzled look. Well, what do you mean? So, well, mm. you're trying to uh, 
point out that I have a particular interpretation about something as if that's wrong, but that means that you have an interpretation that you think is right. So is that your interpretation? So turn that around, first of all. That's a good uh, apologetic uh, tactic. And now, But if you really wanted to have fun with that, <clears throat> you could ask them a couple questions or allow them to ask you questions. And uh, uh, every question that they ask, say something really silly or nonsensical, like, um, yes, the sky's blue. Every question they ask, yes, the sky's blue. I told you the sky's <laughs> blue. And and they're going to start getting agitated, and, and they're going to understand that you're deliberately misinterpreting them or you're just trying to yank their chain. But the point that you're trying to drive home here, Garth, is that if they are free to invent their own interpretations of what the Bible says, then you're free to invent your interpretations of what they are saying. That's that's the point in this. And that helps them to understand that words have meaning uh, and that it has a clear meaning and uh, it's not to be dismissed lightly, uh, 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 the interpretation of the scripture. It has a meaning uh, for us that can be known. Um, I'm talking about this whole uh, uh, idea of helping people to understand um, why it's important for them to study the Bible. I, I, I want to touch on something again, uh, exegesis versus, uh, uh, versus eisegesis, uh, putting something in a text that isn't there. Um, the the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, uh, are guilty of this in a good many instances, aside from from all sorts of other things. Um, but when we say eisegesis is reading something into the text that isn't there, uh, let me give you an example of this. First Corinthians eight five says, "For even if there are so-called gods, little g gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many little g gods and many lords." The Mormons take that passage. That's one of their proof texts to teach that, that there are many gods who govern other planets. They use that verse uh, as part of their support uh, for the belief that they are in the process of becoming gods. Um, and that simply is not supported in that context or any other passage. Paul Paul's speaking about idols. That's the context. He's speaking about idols, the many Greek and Roman gods of mythology, uh, false, non-existent gods. That's the... That's the point that Paul uh, was making there. So, uh, in, in, so in this process then of helping people uh, to understand uh, what the scripture is saying and, and why it's saying it, there's all kinds of different uh, uh, word forms. There's um, hyperbole, um, obvious and intentional exaggeration there's there's metaphorical language we've touched on that there's uh, anthropomorphisms now, that's a long a big word that simply means that uh, we talk of god as if he uh, has human form mike yes i think hyperbole and you know literally that means um you know gross exaggeration yes um well a dictionary meaning of it is that it's you know it's gross exaggeration Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's one that we probably need to be aware of uh, because yes. you can get carried away with some of the things that are, for example, that come out of Jesus's mouth, right? Yes. Uh-huh. You know, our master and our king, he used hyperbole. Uh, we've got to yes. un- uh, understand that. An example that I believe is the use of the hyperbole by Jesus where in um, 
uh, Luke fourteen twenty six, and he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I think that's the use of the hyperbole. Yes. Um, and, and the reason why is because it actually goes against of quite a lot of what other points of Scripture make. Uh, you know, a, a man is uh, instructed to love his wife, for example, um, honour his mother and father, so therefore you can't do that when you hate them. So I think he's using... That's right. You know, I don't want to take us off down to a Bible study on Luke 14. No. <laughs> but I just wanted to give that example um, of what I was saying. Uh, and that's why we've got to be aware that, that the, you know, the Bible does use figurative language and you, you need to be aware of it. And, and yes. you need to have some skills um, to work out what is and what isn't because you could then take the point that I've just made and uh, um, and try and apply it to something that is not hyperbole and uh, twist something and go down a path of error. So yep. this is why we need to study. I think also this is why we need to have good fellowship, Mike. I think yes, fellowship I assists us in not wandering on down strange paths because we can bounce ideas off uh, each other. Like you said at your um, your men's Bible study, y you know, I could come with that. And, and if just say, for example, I was completely wrong, I would have other brothers and or sisters to point it out. Hey, listen, you know, that's not actually what it means, you know. Um, that's and that's right. why I think fellowship is, is essential. And so is good teaching by good uh, pastors. But anyway, let's move on. <laughs> yes, yes. No, those are very, very good, Garth. I appreciate that. Mm. Um, uh, I have one that was uh, spoken um, uh Against him, okay, uh, yeah, the, Phar the, the, yeah. the Pharisees mm -hmm. in John twelve nineteen mm. uh, said to one another, "Listen, we've got to stop this guy mm. uh, because the whole world." They said the whole world right. has gone after him. Now that's obviously exaggeration, hyperbole. Uh, the, the whole world had not gone after him. Mm. Um, we again, we use that all time in our own daily language. Uh, for example, I've heard people say that, man, this, this is about the, the 1000th time I've been <laughs> sick this year. Right, know? right. And, and it might be the third or the fourth, yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but they're obviously, um, uh, exaggerating. Um, uh, so metaphorical language, we've talked about that already. Uh, anthropomorphisms, we've talked about that. Um, symbolism, there's a lot of symbolism, right. uh, in, in the scriptures. Um, I think of the sword at the Garden of Eden. God stationed the cherubim and uh, the flaming sword um, uh, is symbolic of, of man's breach in fellowship, of the disconnect between fellowship as a result of uh, uh, sin entering into our uh, experience. Uh, the burning bush uh, was a symbol of God's holiness as well as his presence. Um Visionary symbols in the scriptures, uh, the dry bones given flesh in Ezekiel 37, uh, speaks about Israel being uh, physically restored. Um, the four beasts in Daniel 7 speaks of uh, the subsequent empires of Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Um, 
and, and that leads us to a good point that we need to uh, uh, point out, Garth. And this will help some of our listeners when they're saying, well, how can I study this and how can I uh, grasp this and why should I do this? Well, uh, for your own edification, obviously, but also uh, so that you can be a, a, a much better prefer, uh, pre- prepared witness uh, for the Lord. Um, and so we need to, to understand the difference between literal and figurative language in the scriptures. Um, that's, that's a very important point. Um, using uh, the literal sense is, is, is the first priority unless there's good reason not to. Uh, and I would use Revelation again as an example. Much of Revelation is uh, is simple or figurative language. And so we need to understand what that is actually saying. Um, we should use figurative language when the passage is uh, stated to be figurative. Um, and we know that uh, in many of the parables, Jesus used everyday uh, illustrations that had a figurative or spiritual principle or truth that that he was trying to teach. So um, let me make two final illustrations on the importance of understanding this uh, cultural, historical context of a passage, Garth, and then we'll we'll move on to other things. Is that okay? Yeah. So, so, uh, let me give, um, just two final uh, illustrations that, that, uh, that I hope will, uh, help our listeners understand the importance of the process of interpretation and understanding it within the cultural context. Um, and this one is from Luke 15, where we read about, uh, the, uh, the prodigal son. It says, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he, and that being the prodigal son, got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So that's that's the beginning and the end of the, the, the uh, parable of the prodigal son, uh, verses 12 through 20. Uh, the prodigal son had asked for his inheritance, took off and... and lived a, a riotous life, uh, fell into hard times, and decided to come back home. Now, pastors uh, use that all the time to talk about God's grace and mercy, and it, and it certainly is a good picture of that. But we miss the fullness and the richness of this uh, passage of Scripture um, if we don't delve into and understand the background uh, of, of that parable in the context, the, the Near Eastern context. So, uh, and, and what I mean by that is this, what, what, what the younger son did was actually, um, a disgrace to the father. And, um, uh, and so he went off and, but even though the father was disgraced in his own hometown, the father runs out to the son. Now, in order to do that, you read the passage, the father ran through the fields to, to, to meet his son. But in order to do that, he had to pull his garments up so that he could run. Right. But pulling his garments up exposed his legs, and that was considered disgraceful. Mm-hmm. Um, Pharisees didn't walk through unplowed fields because of that very thing. So he did this not only because he missed his son, but he did this because he was going to save him from wrath. You see... In the Near Eastern culture, when a son dishonored his father, the town would break a pot of bitter herbs on the path which he used to leave, 
indicating that he was cut off from the community. And, and if the son returned, then the town would form a, a line on both sides of the path and they would stone the son as he came down the path. And, right. and in history, there is no account of any, uh, anyone ever surviving that ritual. So doesn't that give a much broader and deeper appreciation for what God has done in, in, in redemption to save us from the consequences uh, of our sin? Um, and so that, and so doesn't that's, it make it more exciting and interesting? And, and I think this is a, uh, the example that uh, I know you do, but I, I agree with you that I'd like to see people understand uh, this isn't just for scholars or pastors. Uh, it's exciting. It's interesting. You can get so much more out of it by applying some of these the techniques that you've mentioned earlier on, and yes. it can make your Bible study so much more exciting, but it yes. can make you so, so much more useful to other believers and unbelievers because uh, the stronger you are in the study of the Word, the more you know about just simple uh, background stories like that, you know, the, the, um, uh, the cultural relevance of, of that passage opens it up so much more than what, than just the first reading, you know, the first blast, the first take on it, doesn't it? And yes, it's, it's it, exciting. It, I mean, it really I, I'm, is. I'm, I'm, I'm excited now if you can't tell, so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it really, it really is exciting. And, and, and let me share, uh, a, a, a quote from A.W. Tozer, hmm. uh, um, that comes to mind. In fact, I, I came across this yesterday and, and actually posted it, uh, on my Facebook page because it was so edifying. Um, but, but Tozer said this. He said, no man is better for knowing that God in the beginning created the heaven and the earth. The devil knows that. And so did Ahab and Judas Iscariot. No man is better for knowing that God so loved the world of men that he gave his only begotten son to die for their redemption. In hell, there are millions who know that. Theological truth is useless until it is obeyed. The purpose behind all doctrine is to secure moral action, end quote. And so that underscores exactly what we've been talking about here, Garth, is that we go through this, these processes, we, we do these things in order to mine the riches of the scriptures. Now, I'll give you one more example. And, and then, and then we can move on. But, uh, understanding the historical context has an impact on, on interpretation. And this, this passage is John chapter one, the first four verses. Uh, in the beginning was the word or the logos and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Now, there was a prevailing philosophy uh, at the time that John wrote this, uh, wrote his gospel um, that uh, was championed by philosophers such as uh, Philo of Alexandria and uh, uh, Heraclitus. Um, and, and they spoke of a logos that was a divine energy that um, created everything. And so John, in, 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 in uh, his passage here, bringing up the Logos, he's telling his audience this. He says, you know that Logos that you're always talking about? Well, let me tell you who that really is. And uh, so when we understand the historical background uh, of the writing of the Gospels, wow, 
it, it just it just it's like a color commentator uh, on a sporting event. They add so much flavor and background with their stories and the and uh, all of the tidbits and the facts that 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 really just bring it to life. Um, so uh, the, this this question, uh, Garth, we can go back, and I know we've been uh, attacking uh, your question uh, from a lot of different angles. Uh, what does that mean for the for the average uh, uh, believer? Uh, how can they apply these things? Uh, well, l- let me say this uh, by way of another explanation or reason, uh, and that is this: is that uh, every passage of Scripture has a meaning, and it only has one meaning. Uh, a verse can have a lot of different applications, but it can only have one actual meaning uh, in the context of the passage and the chapter and the book in which uh, it is given. So how do we arrive at what that meaning is? Well, that's the process that we've been talking about today. Yeah, look, what I want to ask you is um, you have mentioned the role of Holy Spirit earlier, but in some ways we're sounding like this is very, very intellectual. In your opinion, what role does God play in this study that we're talking about? You know, this idea of hermeneutics. Do, is it is it a dry thing? We just sit down with our Bible and we apply these techniques. What role does God play in, in our study of, of his word? Yes, yes. Well, uh, the, the Holy Spirit, Garth, is, is uh, uh, you and I both uh, uh, understand and, and believe uh, uh the Holy Spirit is is the uh, uh, is the agent of understanding. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, brings illumination. Um, it's the Holy Spirit that gives understanding. The the the, the Bible tells us that uh, without the Holy Spirit, uh, that there can be no understanding. Uh, there can be no. Uh, there certainly can be no application, um, uh, long lasting application right, I, right. I should qualify that because men are capable through their own uh, sheer willpower to follow something guidelines or principles for a while but uh, the weakness of man in his character means that when the crunch time comes that they're always going to do what is best for themselves now uh, because of the Holy Spirit uh, and this doesn't mean that Christians uh, don't fail at this as well. Uh, but we have the power within us by the Holy Spirit uh, to obey what it is that uh, the Bible is telling us and teaching us. Um, and this this also applies to our Bible study. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that I would encourage people to do, and I don't know that I mentioned it, and, and I apologize for that oversight, um, is that we should always pray as we approach the Scriptures. Um, one of the things that I do uh, when I study and, and even uh, every Sunday before I head to church to teach and uh, when I'm at church before I teach, I always pray uh, this prayer. Lord, put your thoughts in my mind and your words in my mouth and teach your people by the Holy Spirit. I don't want to interfere with that process of what God may want to speak to his people. And so it's always by the power uh, and the working and the indwelling uh, of the Holy Spirit that we uh, study, come to understand, are illuminated, our minds are illuminated. Uh, The Holy Spirit will guide you in in your Bible study. 
Uh, you've probably had this experience and many of your listeners can relate to this. Uh, you'll read a passage of scripture and then you'll think of another scripture that relates to that. And, and then you check that and then there's another scripture and pretty soon you've got a whole daisy chain of passages, uh, that relate to that. Um, we pray all the time, Lord, and give me an opportunity to witness about your goodness and mercy to someone else. Uh, and, and when those opportunities come, give me the words. Well, that happens. How many times that happened in your experience? Uh, most of us, uh, now I carry a, a Bible with me in my vehicle, uh, so that, uh, wherever I'm at, I've got one handy, but I don't walk around 24 seven with a Bible in my hands. Right. right. Uh, and, and so I, I, I rely on the Holy Spirit to bring back to my memory, and the, and the scripture says that he will, bring back to your memory everything that you have need of for the time that you have need of it. And, and so that includes when we're studying the scriptures or when we're sharing the gospel with with uh, uh, other people. The, the Holy Spirit will bring that to the forefront of our mind. So uh, to, to, to answer your question, our study must be based on the Holy Spirit. If we're trying to do it just as an intellectual exercise, um, he, here's what I think is going to happen. Uh, you may charge off into this uh, uh, like gangbusters and uh, and just be uh, uh, wildly enthusiastic, but that's probably going to wane uh, because your motivation is not, uh, it doesn't have the right source. Uh, the reason that we do this, Garth, is so that we might live a life that is more pleasing uh, to the Lord, that we might bring Him glory and honor, because as we study the Scriptures, we come to a fuller understanding of, of, of who He is. And this has been my experience. Uh, you know, and I shared at the beginning of the show that I've got uh, uh, some education, uh, and I, I don't beat a drum about that. I don't think it's important to do that. Uh, it doesn't define who I am. Uh, there are people who are just as capable of handling the scriptures as I am, and, and they don't have any formal education. So I don't throw that out there to uh, to, to to beat a drum. Uh, but but here's my point: uh, having an education. Uh, someone asked me once. They said, "So, uh, what exactly uh, did you learn after you got your your uh, PhD?" And I said, "Well, this is what I learned. Uh, getting my PhD taught me how much I didn't know." And it, it has taught me my yeah. shortcomings yeah. And, it, and it has shown me exactly how far I have to go, which is a, a long way. And um, so I, I would encourage people uh, to understand that studying the scriptures and, and all these things that we've and, and believe me, uh, Garth, there is so much more that we could go into so much more. Uh, but for our listeners, uh, just just understand that God expects us to be in close communion with him uh, day by day. And the best way that we can do that is through prayer and Bible study. Prayer and Bible study. And uh, and the Holy Spirit is going to work all of that out uh, in our lives. Not everybody's called to be a pastor uh, or a teacher uh, or a disciple group leader, but everybody is called to walk in a closer relationship with the Lord, and we do that by studying His Word. Can I point out that we're also, each and every one of us, no matter who we are, uh, whether we are the eye or the leg or the arm, 
uh, we're also all called to be a witness to this truth that we un- become to understand as we study. So um, that's right. Each yes. and every one of us, you know, if you've got it, you've got to give it away for it to be worth anything. Yeah, and, man, that's uh, right. Heard that said before. I didn't come up with that one, but um, I think that's true. It's it's not to build yourself up and puff yourself up. It's so that you can come become. A, uh, a more formidable weapon in, in the hands of God against the spiritual enemies and, uh, yes. and, and, and to bring people and assist people to understand the truth and to hopefully pull a few out of the fire while, yes. while you're still on this side of the, of the great divide. Mike, is there yes. anything else that you wanted to talk about before we finish up? No, just, uh, I want to reiterate to your listeners, your audience, Garth, uh, how much I appreciate being able to speak with you on this subject and also to, to have their ear. Um, it, it is a passion of mine to help people understand how they can uh, study the scriptures for themselves. Uh, and it, it is a lifelong endeavor, by the way. Don't think that you're ever going to get to a point. Mm-hmm. I, I think I made that clear. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and uh, uh, where 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 you have everything figured out. In fact, I I, I recall the first time I ever said that from the pulpit, mm-hmm. uh, I, I said something to the effect that, uh, you know, we're all on a on a, a process or journey of learning, and uh, I certainly do not have this all figured out. Mm-hmm. And 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 the look on people's faces, it, it was. Uh, uh, to me, it was humorous because it was the first time that they had ever, I think, that they realized that they've been given permission to admit, listen, we are all in the process of being molded and shaped and informed right. uh, by the Lord. Um, God, God's God's purpose and plan for us, and, and, and I know this whole idea of having, a, you know, God has a purpose for your life has gotten a bad rap through the, you know, but uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Be, be that as it may, uh, I tell people and, 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 and now I use it because of that, just as a hook to get people to understand, but listen, God has a purpose and a plan for your life. He really does and the Bible tells us what it is. Mm. You don't need to go out and try to discover it. Mm-hmm. I, I can tell you what it is. Here exactly. it is. Yeah. God says that my purpose and plan for you is to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. That is his plan and purpose. Exactly. And then for you to go out and make disciples of, of that's others. Exact, yes. So you, you, yes. That's exactly right. So I think we agree yes. there. Mike, can you um, tell, tell our listeners where they can find you on the web? And also, um, I'm excited to share the news about your new podcast. So uh, tell us uh, those couple of things, please, before we let you go. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, uh, the, the new podcast, um, and, and in fact, that, uh, for your listeners, uh, just a little background, uh, Garth, uh, has become a, a, a quick and blessed friend of mine, uh, through, uh, uh, my podcast. Uh, I was able to, to talk with Garth, um, a few weeks ago on the reliability of the Bible. Uh, and, and, uh, if you think I'm passionate about this subject, uh, you need to listen to Garth's passion <laughs> on, on the reliability of the Bible. And we got a part two coming up uh, on that same subject. So uh, stay tuned for that. But, but that was, that episode was just released. Uh, it is in iTunes. If you want to subscribe to, uh, Soaring Eagle Radio, uh, you can do so through iTunes. Uh, you can visit the website, uh, soaringeagleradio.com. Uh, you'll find it there. You can uh, follow Soaring Eagle on Twitter, Soaring Eagle Rad. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, CC Pastor Mike. Uh, 
both of those, uh, I'm on Facebook, Soaring Eagles on Facebook. You can find all that uh, uh, information there. Uh, and I just want to give uh, uh, Garth, um, your listeners, these uh, uh, these resources as well. I already mentioned McQuilkin's book, Understanding and Applying the Bible. Um, another book that your that your uh, listeners may find valuable, uh, and and uh, as I view them, McQuilkins is more a uh, a college level or maybe even a first year seminary student level book on her, uh, hermeneutics. Uh, much of the information that I've shared today, uh, McQuilkin covers in his book. Uh, also, another book is uh, Howard and William Hendricks's book uh, entitled "Living by the Book." That that is a good, and that's a, that's uh, that's a good lay lay person uh, book. It'd be a good book for uh, a Bible study group to to take up to understand the subject we've been discussing today. And then there are lots of apologetics uh, uh, websites. Um, I like confidentchristians.org. Confidentchristians.org. Uh, a lot of the material that I've uh, shared with your listeners today uh, can be found there. Uh, so give them kudos for that. Um, but uh, yeah, things are going good. Uh, the show's being uh, well received, and uh, I've been very blessed uh, uh, to meet uh, to meet you, Garth, and to, and I consider you a friend. So thank you very much for having me on the show. Oh, Mike, it's uh, it's a great honor and a privilege to have you on. And uh, the same goes. I really appreciate your fellowship. Um, so very, um, so just like to say, um, thanks very much for coming on board. And, um, I hope you come back and we can talk about another, uh, uh biblical topic, um, uh, similar to this, Mike, um, because I really, I get a lot out of it. And as you mentioned, I do get a bit passionate. And if you listen to that episode, that, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't think I'll, I don't think I want to listen back to myself because I realized maybe my passion got ahead of my mouth there a bit, but, um, but anyway. Well, and- and we're not near done with that, are we? No, we've got to come back and do some more. Yeah, we got. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm hoping you'll come back to Like Flint Radio. So um, uh, thanks Would very much, to. Pastor Mike Spaulding. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Pastor Mike. If you've got any comments or suggestions, you can write to me at gk at likeflintradio.com. That's all lowercase, gk at likeflintradio.com. And you can find us on the web at likeflintradio.com, and you can access our archives there. Uh, and find some of our previous shows that you might be interested in. This song entitled Vigilance is by Acrolith, and it's lyrically based on the parable of the ten virgins. I hope you enjoy it. And until next time, God bless, and hooroo.
Close my 